Welcome to the Viscast, everybody. We are still in Holy Week, and in this episode, we are talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but we're focusing mainly on historical issues, and in two ways. We're thinking about the historical setting of Jesus's death and the different players involved, and what do we know about them, and what can we say about the gospel portrayal of these characters And then secondarily, we're thinking about the context of the gospel writers and how that affects their narrative and how each text has some little different details to it and some different stories and what we think of those. So the next episode on crucifixion and resurrection will really focus heavily on um, theological implications And it will be a little bit historical about how Christianity has tried to understand Jesus's death and resurrection, but also about modern implications and our own feelings and ideas about Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. So thanks, as always, for listening. I hope you enjoy it. So we want to start with Pilate and the portrayal of Pilate in the gospel accounts. He's portrayed quite favorably um, because he really is portrayed as really hesitant to put Jesus to death. Uh, In all four gospels, he's not convinced that Jesus is guilty of anything worthy of anything more than flogging. That's his suggestion. I'm going to have him flogged and then um, that'll be the end of it. But he's then convinced by either just the sort of chief priests and elders or by the chief priests, and this is more in um, most strongest in Matthew, by the chief priests and then whatever Jewish people are gathered there where this is happening to have Jesus killed. And uh, the, the reason we mention it is because what we know historically about Pilate, that characterization from the Gospels uh, doesn't fit very well. Uh, Pilate is one of these characters, and this doesn't happen that often actually, where you have outside confirmation or information from, from other sources than the Bible about a character in the Bible. That is very, very rare. But in the case of Pilate, we do have outside sources that speak about him and about his time as governor. So he was governor of Judea from 26 to 36 CE. So somewhere in there is um, the date, the year in which Jesus was killed. He was known to be rather cruel. So one source we have is Philo of Alexandria. This is a Jewish philosopher mainly who lived in Alexandria in Egypt. And his dates are 25 BCE to 45 CE. And he speaks of of Pilate and highlights Pilate's venality, his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his abusive behavior, his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. Now, 
compare that, of course, to the depictions in the Gospels, and we seem to be talking about two very different people. Um, Josephus also has some things that you were mentioning to me earlier, Dad. Yeah, Josephus um, talks about a couple of different things. I mean, um, one of the things, one of the other things we know is that while Pilate had judicial authority over the province as the governor, he doesn't really have the military force to always carry it out. And that's, that's really an important thing to say because what that meant is, uh, and this, is, this again is, uh, is uh, uh, historical reality for people like Pilate, is he had responsibility from Rome to keep the peace in this region. And in order to do so, he wasn't given the military force that he could just do it any way he wanted to. He had to collaborate. He had to work with the local authorities and the local authorities would have been the high priest. So there would have been a relationship between him and the high priest. So Josephus talks about an incident where a um, group of soldiers, a particular regiment, came into Jerusalem with an insignia that was offensive to the Jews. And the Jews came to Pilate's residence in Jerusalem, which would have been a palace near what is today Jaffa Gate. And they surrounded the palace and they threatened to die rather than capitulate to this insignia. And Josephus says that um, Pilate relented and took the insignia down and had these soldiers use a different banner, which had to have been difficult for these soldiers, but he did it. Then in another incident, again, that Josephus reports, Pilate takes money from the temple treasury to bring an aqueduct from Bethlehem, from the pool of Siloam, or from the pool of Sol, pools of Solomon, into Jerusalem. And the Jews are up in arms because he used temple treasury money to do that. And so they're rioting. And Pilate has Roman soldiers dressed as commoners go into the crowd. And then at a signal, they take out their clubs and they beat many of these rioters to death. And he puts down the riot in a very violent way. So what we can see from those two incidents is that Pilate is, lives in tension. On the one hand, he needs to work with the Jewish authorities. He needs to be able to know what fights to pick. And so I, I think where that plays into this story, and I'll throw it back to you, is this is what I see happening with Jesus. He needs to decide what fights to pick. So he might feel that Jesus really isn't um, worthy of death, but he's got the high priest and others saying, we want this guy taken care of. And so he's got to make a decision about what to do there. Yeah, I think that's really good. It means that the truth of this incident with Jesus is somewhere in between Pilate being willing to just kill anybody whenever, right? 
And between that and what the Gospels portray, which is that Pilate was this very wishy-washy character who wanted to make sure whoever he killed was actually guilty, right? Neither of those things, meaning neither Philo's uh, portrayal of Pilate is correct entirely, nor is the gospel portrayal of Pilate correct entirely. The truth is somewhere in between. And um, so often that's the case, right? So what it means is that probably what we have here is that, yes, the Jewish authorities see Jesus as problematic and want Pilate to have him killed. And they ultimately are able to convince him because if they can convince Pilate like, hey, he's saying things like he's the king of a future kingdom, the people are kind of rallying around them, it's Passover, you got 500,000 to a million people here, you got to do something, or we think this is going to get out of hand, um, that probably would be enough for Pilate. And we've talked about this before. There may be a bribe involved to Pilate from the, the chief priests here. Um, Pilate would have been willing probably to take a bribe, and the chief priests would have had money from the temple treasuries to do so. So the question, the next question is, why don't the Gospels portray it that way, right? Why are they portraying just the Jewish people and really just the Jewish leaders Matthew's kind of an exception here. He extends it really to all the Jews of Jerusalem or as many as possible. Why are the gospel writers trying to go easy on Pilate and going um, so hard on the Jewish leaders? Just to add a caveat to that, Josh, that I think is important. So what's the difference between Paul and Jesus when it comes to dealing with the Roman authorities? because there is a place where we can look and say, okay, what happened there? Paul creates a disturbance up on the Temple Mount. Jesus did the same thing, different disturbances, but still a disturbance. The Jewish people get upset. The leader, Jewish leaders are upset. Um, and they're roughing Paul up, and Roman guards come down, and they break it all up, and... Uh, and they're going to manhandle Paul, and they find out what? Lo and behold, Paul's a Roman citizen. And so that he ends up in Caesarea Maritima, which is uh, the cap, really the, the place where the Roman governor spent most of their time, and he deals with two governors there. One is Felix, the other is Festus. Um, there's a king, or a, a Jewish king, Agrippa, who comes, the second who comes, but there's also the Jewish authorities who come. And the governor has to deal with the high priest's lawyer who comes to argue that Paul should be taken back to Jerusalem and tried and dealt with, and dealt with, I'm guessing, by execution. But he's a Roman citizen. Here's my point. Jesus has none of those protections, except he's a Jew. And he expects, and we expect, and the disciples expected, and maybe even the Jewish people expected, that his protectors would be the Jewish leaders, and they're not protecting him. 
Yeah, this it's probably worth saying he is almost certainly a Jew with no ties to the elite of Jerusalem. He's a Jew from Galilee. He doesn't have uh, anybody to call upon, most likely, to vouch for him amongst the powerful people of Jerusalem. And um, that fits really well with what we know about him from the Gospels. It also fits well with probably who he's actually attracting within Jerusalem. Um, if he's attracting people in Jerusalem, and that would be regular folks. But what, what I would add to that, what I find really fascinating is when Jesus is, when we have this conversation with Jesus and Pilate, Jesus is like, well, I do have protection. I have, I have legions of angels. I think it's with Pilate. I have legions of angels I could call on, but I'm not going to, which is kind of an interesting, in, in this discussion, I don't know what to make of that. I just find that a kind of a fascinating. He does have a protector, right, according to this. He does have protection. He's got legions of angels who could come to his aid, but he chooses not to call upon them. I don't want to linger on that, but I, I just think that's an interesting piece. Well, it's worth noting as we think about why did Jesus ultimately get killed? And it wasn't because he was an insurrectionist. It wasn't because he was a zealot trying to lead armed resistance against Rome. Um, he's not even accused of that. There's a specific term for that. And he's, that term is not used in the Gospels. And it's not what's put above the cross. What's put above the cross is King of the Jews. That was the main problem. He was saying that he was going to be a king in a future kingdom. And the only way that was going to happen is if God intervened in some miraculous way, right? And so that probably explains uh, why Ju what Judas betrayed. So he betrays knowledge that Jesus has been talking about being a king in a kingdom. It also explains probably why his followers were scared, but ultimately saved from the same fate as Jesus. If they thought Jesus was going to lead an insurrection, a violent one, they probably would have rounded up some of the followers as well and killed them. But they deemed it um, sufficient just to kill Jesus to end uh, the threat. So the chief priests and Pilate both are sort of equally involved here and problematic here. Um, we want to think a little bit about what Jesus says on the cross and what that says about um, some of the gospel writers or just about scripture writers in general. Um, so they each, except for Mark and Matthew, share. So Mark and Matthew have Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John has, it is finished, and Luke has, into your hands I commend or commit my spirit. And each of those is probably doing some sort of function in the gospel itself. Um, we don't likely have an eyewitness to Jesus' death who could report with any accuracy what Jesus said. We have most of the followers of Jesus scattered, except for some women following Jesus who, but even they're doing it at a distance, right? So this is according to the text. 
So is it likely that we have um, an accurate history of what Jesus said on the cross? Probably not, um, which is why we have different versions in John, Luke, and then Matthew and Mark. Um, I think for John, the theological overlay of what Jesus says is probably clearest if I, if I were to pick between those options. And, and that's not a surprise because John's gospel is the one that seems to have strayed the farthest from the historical Jesus into the theological Jesus. So that, that John would be doing this at the end of his gospel, sort of at the climax, isn't a big surprise. One thing of note, and then I'll, I'll pass it uh, to you, is that John is operating with a slightly different calendar than the Synoptic Gospels, and it's confusing because he's not changing the days. All of the Gospels have Jesus dying on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, in the day, not in the evening, because when evening starts, it's the Sabbath, right? This is why the burial has to be quick. Get him down and bury him before sundown. But what John has is that the day in which Jesus is dying, so it's Friday afternoon, is the day of preparation for the Passover. So when the sun goes down, Passover begins in the Gospel of John. In the synoptics, it was the same day that Jesus died is also Passover. That's confusing because in, in accounting of days, in uh, the Jewish calendar, the days, and this is still true um, in Israel, the days for the, for the accounting of the Sabbath only, the, uh, the days begin in, at sundown. So on sun, at sundown, they have the Passover meal in the synoptics because the calendar is pushed back a day. So they have this Passover meal in which uh, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And then on that same day, the day of Passover, all these other events are happening. So it's Friday for everybody. But for John, that Friday is the day of preparation for Passover. For the synoptics, it's actually Passover, the day that Jesus is crucified. Why is that significant for John? I'll, I'll pass it to you for that. Well, I liked what you, when we were talking earlier, before we started here, you also made the point that um, the day begins at sundown. And so with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's all the same day. I mean, the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, Garden of Gethsemane, um, the trial, uh, all of that happens in the same day. Uh, because it begins at sundown, it doesn't end till, till sundown the next day. And for John, too, it's all the same day. He doesn't have some of these other events in it. So, well, I think the theology, well, we, we don't want to get too much into the theology here, but um, the Paschal lamb would have been slaughtered at three o'clock in the afternoon, which they all have. Well, John doesn't really say what time it is, but he, he's, he wants it to happen then. All of the three synoptics have him dying at three o'clock in the afternoon when the Paschal lamb would have been slaughtered for John. And, and we'll talk about the theology of this all in our next one. But 
that I think that's important. I also want to mention that historically, because we have this Barabbas thing in there, I think it's worth noting that there's no historical evidence whatsoever of, of the Romans releasing a prisoner during Passover. We don't have anywhere that says that except in this account. And again, it's, I think it's one of those incidents where this is post-destruction of the temple. This is, and you've talked about this before, the church is becoming Gentile church. The Jewish people as a whole have rejected the Jesus movement. They don't buy into this stuff at all. The idea of a Messiah who's going to, uh, going to die and then rise again, that's, that's not in their scriptures. They don't see it there. They've rejected that. And these gospel writers, every one of them, all four, want to make the point that uh, that movement is wrong. And the, the, the have, they have become the enemy to them. And I think that has had profound effects uh, on the Jewish people and Christianity. It needs to be challenged every time and everywhere. So we need to challenge that. I think that's the point you're making, right? That that's, that's the motivation behind a good bit of uh, the narrative around the uh, trial and death uh, of Jesus. Yeah, it seems as though putting more emphasis on the Jewish leaders and then in Matthew, you have um, also the, the whole crowd there saying, um, crucify him and his blood be upon us and upon our children, um, which may be, there might be some irony that Matthew is inserting there as well, if he thinks of Jesus's blood as salvific. But um yeah, the, the later, in the time of the writing of the Gospels, you have um, a rift has formed between the Jewish community and the, what is becoming the Christian community. And so that probably is getting read back into the account of Jesus's death. And so more emphasis is being put on the role of the Jewish authorities. And then for Matthew, all Jewish people of Jerusalem um, being blamed. There's also, uh, and this is most evident in Luke, in Luke you have, um, surely this man was innocent, is what is said by the Roman uh, guard after Jesus is killed. Whereas in um, Matthew and Mark you have, um, truly this was God's son. And the idea being that you want the Roman governor Pilate and the Roman guard acknowledging that Jesus wasn't really guilty. He wasn't really a problem. So us followers of Jesus now who are part of the Roman kingdom, you don't have to worry about us. I know that we are proclaiming things about someone you crucified and that might concern you about our movement but let me show you that your own governor and then uh, a soldier who was there both said he wasn't really guilty. It was the Jews who had a problem with him. So don't worry about us Christians. We're not troublemakers for you, Rome. Right? That's good. You said something too. And when, again, when we were discussing this before we started to record that I, I, I found uh, insightful about Matthew 
and his uh, his kind of propensity for anxiety. Say say a little bit about that because I think our our listeners will be interested. So I've come I've come to th- try and think pretty deeply about the gospel writers, even though we don't really know their identities. We you get a little bit of a feel for them as you read their gospels. Um, you certainly get a feel for some of their theology, but you maybe also get a little bit of a feel for the person and. Um, I've always, I've come to think of Matthew as being fairly conservative thinking and also maybe a little bit just kind of an anxious person. Um, And I say that because throughout his gospel, more than the other gospels, he's trying to put everything into place to make it all work. And so he does a lot of quotes from the Old Testament saying that there, Jesus is fulfilling, um, parts of the Old Testament. And when you go back and look at some of these quotes that he uses, you can just see that he's, 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 re- he's really stretching credibility here with these things. And then, um, you know, when Jesus is killed, all of them have darkness, except for John. Uh, when I say all of them, I mean the synoptics have darkness descending when Jesus is crucified. Matthew adds an earthquake when Jesus dies. Matthew adds an earthquake when Jesus rises from the dead. He even adds, and this might be the most bizarre thing that he adds, he has not just Jesus rising from the dead, but also some prominent people of Jerusalem rising from the dead and kind of stumbling into the city. And um, the reason, I just think those are just extra things he feels he needs to add to make it all more sensational, um, all more amazing, right? Oh, it, it wasn't just this little event in Jerusalem, Jesus dying and rising from the dead. No, you know, the cosmos is somehow involved here via an earthquake or at his birth via a really special star. And um, we know people like that, right? We've maybe been people like that. Um, in our own desire for there to be, for it to all make sense, for it to be more sensational and amazing than maybe it really is or was. And so, I, I don't know, I just come to think of the author of Matthew in those terms as I think more concretely about these human beings behind um, these texts. Yeah, I like that a lot. And yes. I've been that guy. I still can be that guy. And most every preacher who's listening to this knows exactly what you're saying, understands and can relate to our wanting this to be um, not just, you know, we just don't think it can stand on its own legs. And I, I think it can, I think it does. And I think that's been proven throughout 2000 years of history. In fact, being non-anxious about it and letting the story speak for itself. That's why, like on Good Friday, I love the Tenenbrae rather than somebody preaching a sermon, and I've done both, where somebody's just reading the text and allowing the story to be there rather than having to embellish it or make something of it. I mean, I, Friday I watched a, a Good Friday service 
where there was a long sermon and I'm like, man, stop. And then I watched one that was very simple. A little church in Ames, Iowa that my nephew serves. His name is Aaron. He's a wonderful pastor. It was just him and uh, his uh, music person. And they had candles. And he said at the beginning, I'm just going to read the story. And he did it in increments. And they did a little singing. And he would put out the candles. And it was more, it was moving to me. So I, I think that that's really good. So let's go to, to the three days. Okay, so let's move to that. Um, it wasn't three days. I mean, unless you're really trying to make it three days, here's again where we're working real hard to make this, you know, he was raised after three days, and we don't have to, because you and I know, and a lot of our listeners know too, that numbers in the text aren't necessarily about exactness. They're about three days is in a short time. So that's what the disciples might have heard if they heard anything at all. In a short time, I'm going to be raised. And it was a short time, shorter than three days. I mean, in fact, just a little over 24 hours or not, not even, I mean, right, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's dead and taken off the cross by, and buried by five. And he's raised sometime during the night on Sunday morning. Yeah, may, maybe you can make, 36 hours. Yeah, you can make a case, yeah, 36 hours. So I'm just saying, don't get anxious about that. It's a short time. But and then, Josh, I'm going to throw this back to you then. The expectation, you know, the surprise in this story and I think for Jesus as well as the disciples and everybody else, and us from now on, one man was raised. Yeah. Um, just to finish up a thought on last words on the cross, John seems to be saying something, something's finished or something's accomplished here via Jesus's death, right? And it seems to be connected somehow with the killing of the lambs. Cause at the beginning of John's gospel, he, I think it's John the Baptist says, um, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and then have Jesus die when the lambs for the Passover offering are being offered. You know, that's, um, like Matthew, you might say that's too cute by half, right? John has a little bit of that desire to make it all work perfectly as well. In Matthew's defense, he's not the only one doing that. Um, surprisingly, and this last thing I'll say about last words is Mark and Matthew have this kind of um, cry of abandonment from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a part of a Psalm. So some have said he's quoting you know, the beginning of a Psalm and he means the entire Psalm. And eventually like many Psalms, yeah, it's Psalm 22, like many Psalms, that Psalm comes around to restored faith in God, let's say. Um, but as it stands, it's surprising really, but it could be understood as something like what Jesus might have felt on the cross 
which was fear and abandonment. Um, if you have a Jesus, if your Jesus knows everything and is assured about everything that's happening and even maybe orchestrating everything that's happening, that's kind of the Jesus of John, to be honest. And it ends up being a lot of times the Jesus of faith. But if you instead think of Jesus as a human being who could be confused and even let down, which seems there seems good indications of that with the garden and then here on the cross, you could have a Jesus who thought he would still be saved from death. Uh, maybe he'd get all the way to the cross, but God would still intervene and, and save him and, and do the kingdom um, that he was thinking of and that his disciples were thinking of. So we'll move off from that. And the resurrection of Jesus is not surprising in the sense that Jews thought of resurrection of the dead. Jews in the time of Jesus um, had begun to think that um, resurrection of the dead was a part of the future for the Jewish people. Um, but it was a general resurrection of the dead that was the theological sort of maybe consensus. So all of the dead would be raised at one time and then there would be judgment and then God's good kingdom would start. So for one person to be raised, um, that's what doesn't fit at all. And I think what's interesting is to see the gospel writers to one degree or another struggling with the fact that yes, Jesus is raised, and that means this kind of isn't over yet. But also, what does it mean that one person was raised and everything else basically stayed the same? What does that mean, right? So just to talk about one of them, Mark doesn't even bother to try to tell us what he thinks that means. He doesn't even have a resurrected Jesus appearing to anybody or talking to anybody. Mark has an empty tomb, fear from the women, because they're the first ones to go to the tomb. They're the ones at the cross, women, and women are the first ones to the tomb. And Mark just says, I don't know what this means. I'm not even going to bother to try to tell you. That's it. My gospel's over. And What's funny is that you have people, um, scribes later who are like, well, that's not a good ending and who had right. additions to make right. the ending better. But I mean, I think, you know, somebody living 2000 years later who has the same questions, I think maybe that maybe that Mark had, which is okay. One person was raised from the dead. Everything else basically stayed the same. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do with that? Um, it makes me appreciate Mark a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, I like Mark's ending the best of all of them. I told you that earlier. I, he doesn't even have an angel. He has a young man dressed in a white robe. He's not dazzling white. He's not any of those things. He's a young man dressed in a white robe. And Mark's kind of leads his gospel. And like you say, somebody added a longer version all the way through an ascension, which sounds a lot like Luke, right? Uh, Luke's account. 
Um, but Mark just says, I don't, he's gone. The end of Mark is we don't know where he is. Where's Jesus? That's, I love that. I love that. The mystery of that, the power in that for me, there's more power in that for me than trying to tie it all up. That's the question I would ask. Where is he? And if I can quote Annie Dillard, when she talks about uh, life in general, she said we ought to be looking. I think a lot of people are looking and wondering and and wanting wanting it to be true that God is a part, God is near and involved, but struggling to know what that could possibly mean, right? Because there's all sorts of problems with that and we'll save that sort of longer, deeper discussion that has no end and no clear answers for the next one. Um, but it's a, it's kind of the question. I mean, if God isn't here with us, what is, what does any of it matter really? You know? Um, so Luke, I think is interesting because Luke has this Emmaus road thing and it's not in any of the other gospels. And the reason I bring it up uh, is that Jesus never explains how death and resurrection is the proper messianic blueprint. He says to his disciples, this is what's going to happen. They are always puzzled. He then, it then happens uh, according to our texts. And then this on this Emmaus road experience, you have these people, this, these two people, and we don't know, are they a couple or are they a couple buddies? We don't really know. And they are met by um, what to them is a stranger. And they are wondering and kind of disappointed about what happened to Jesus because they say about him, um, he was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. He was killed. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Right? So for them, they're following a blueprint they know, which is God actually intervenes and they don't have Romans running Judea. And there's, there's not evil forces anymore. Israel's redeemed uh, and living some sort of utopia. But that's not what happened. And so they're like, now we don't know what, you know, what's, what's the deal with this Jesus? I guess he wasn't the one. And I would submit to you, that's how all of his followers are feeling. Jesus comes to them and they have a meal. And then he explains to them, it says, um, and he even says, oh, how foolish you are, is the words of Jesus in Luke. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them. He interpreted to them the things about himself and in the scriptures. It means that Luke is at least acknowledging that there are a lot of questions about how this fits. Right. And I appreciate that he's acknowledging that. Um, what frustrates me is that he says Jesus showed them that it was appropriate and that all the prophets declared this and he, and he beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, he showed them all the things about himself. And, but he doesn't 
he doesn't give us that explanation. And we'd all love to hear it, you know? Please tell me, because I have the same question still, 2,000 years later, I'm still trying to figure out how that makes sense, especially um, from the scriptural the, the scriptural authorities that they had at that time, what to us is the Old Testament. And we just, it doesn't come. We never get from the mouth of Jesus an explanation about what it is death and resurrection accomplishes and how it is it follows nicely from the Old Testament. What we do get is an attempt to... Um find continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think that's a worthy endeavor. Um, We do it too. You know, I think where we make a mistake is where we need to have that happen. I don't need to have that happen. I don't think we ought to be so anxious to think we need to make it all fit. That's why I like Mark's ending. And we'll talk more about uh, that tomorrow. I, I I, I like that. Thanks, Josh, for that. That was great. And I hope those of you who are listening to this um, uh, appreciate that too, because it's it's really a a good question. I would want to also bring up that Matthew, Mark, and John do not end with Jesus going anywhere. We don't know where Jesus is. It's the same thing in Matthew, Mark, and John. And he's up in Galilee. And so Matthew has a couple of things happening up there in Galilee. And John has this really uh, popular and I think important uh, encounter between Peter. And we'll talk about that uh, down the road as well, because I think it's really important. Um, but they don't, they don't have an ascension story. Uh, they don't have any any kind of ending to this, which again, for me, is a part of the mystery. And um, where is Jesus? I mean, like Josh says, that's really the question to be answered. Where is God? That's the question we're asking today when we're with this COVID-19. Where is God? People, all kinds of people have, where is God? Where is Jesus? Where is he to be found? Where is he? And I think that's the question we're asking all the time. We're struggling as, and again, I don't want to get too much in what we're doing tomorrow, but that's a personal struggle for me all the time. Oh my gosh, where's God in this? Is God in this? Does God care? Where's God? Where's Jesus? I think that you're right. I think you're right. That's the question that is left unanswered that we wrestle with every day. Yeah, and I'll just end with this from Matthew because... Um... The other day I was on Twitter and there was a kind of um, emerging or somewhat well-known Christian author and pastor. His name is Brian Zand. And I like a lot of his stuff, or maybe it's Zand. Um, And he put on there, he just put this from the end of Matthew. And this is pretty well-known. It's, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he said, you either believe that or you don't. And I believe it. And I thought to myself, I was a little disappointed, frankly, 
from this guy that he would put that as sort of like a, a test of faith moment on Twitter. But I also thought to myself, what, what, does it, what does that mean? That all authority in heaven, fine. I don't know what's going on with, in heaven or where it is. And it really kind of doesn't matter to me what's going on in heaven. But the part where it says, and on earth has been given to Jesus after Jesus's resurrection. And this is coming from Daniel 7. It's the son of man is supposed to get all um, authority on heaven and earth. But I was left with a similar question that, that we were talking about, which is where is Jesus? So if Jesus has authority here on earth, what is he doing with that authority? I mean, what's different now that Jesus has been raised and been given authority over earth, with apparent, which apparently either God or Jesus didn't have before then, but now have? What is that? What is Jesus doing with that authority for us or for the world or for the earth or for the poor? I don't know the answer to that question. Hey, much thanks at a minimum to Uncle Tony and to Fred. Those are two people I know with certainty are listening to these episodes and I'm grateful. And if it's only you two, that's totally fine with me. We do this for the benefit of those who listen, but we kind of also do it for ourselves because we love to chat about these things and to think about them. So thanks to everyone who listened and we'll be back soon with what I think will be our last episode on Holy Week. Be well, everybody.